Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Can you hear me? Give me a thumbs up. Oh, good, 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 good to see everybody. I am so happy to see you. It feels like a very long time. Um, I want to start off by saying that I am so grateful for all of your messages. I receive them. I read them. I let them into my heart. And they touch me deeply. And, and I wanted to start off this fellowship by thanking you for all that love that you're sending my way. And by letting you know uh, how sorry I am that sometimes I, I don't manage to reply to every message. I know you've all forgiven me, but I don't forgive myself for it. Because, you know, your blessings and your encouragement, they just give me so much strength. You know, numerous times over Shabbat, uh, you know, I spent Shabbat in the hospital. Numerous times I can tell you that I had the same thought, or I should say the same feeling. Uh, it was more than a feeling than a thought. I felt like there were times that I was literally being held up. Uh, it's like it's like imagine you can normally bench press 80 kilos and then all of a sudden you can bench press double that. You're benching 160. I, I felt like I didn't know where the strength was coming from, really. I know it was coming from Hashem, but I really felt in my heart that you were all holding me up with him. Um, I just I had more strength than I was expecting to have to the degree that I was mostly really able to put my own feelings of, of pain and heartbreak aside so that I could be there for my father the way that he needed me to be there for him. So anyways, blessings are real. Um, prayers are real. They're heard and they're always answered and they have the power to change the fabric of reality. So thank you all very, very, very much. Uh, you know, I, I, and just know that I'm reading your messages and I will really try to get better at responding truly. I think I'm better than I used to be, which brings me to an important housekeeping point I want to make before we dive into the fellowship. Please, if you have sent me a question or a comment and I haven't answered it, please reach out again. You're not bothering me. I'm asking you to do it. That I haven't answered you is most likely a reflection of nothing other than the fact I feel like your message deserves a longer response than I had time for at the moment, you know? And so I, it just slipped through the cracks and I'm so sorry. So please send it again. Uh, right now, I'm even thinking about someone that sent me a question. Someone asked me, and I misunderstood their question, and then they clarified it. And then I responded, oh, now I understand your question. And I went to answer it, and I lost it, and I didn't respond. So that must have been weird. It's like, okay, great, Ari. I'm, I'm happy you finally understand my question. No further comment. Anyway, so if that was you, please reach out again. Thank you. I'm just so grateful to all of you and love you so much, and it would break my heart if you thought that it was that my not responding was anything other than just what I explained right now. Okay, so there's that. And another thing I wanted to start with uh, before even jumping into the fellowship, or maybe this really is the fellowship, is to talk for a moment about our beloved Tabitha. Um, someone commented a couple of weeks ago that Tabitha doesn't get the credit that she deserves. And uh, when I read it, I got sort of defensive and, and it stung. And I think it stung because it's true. I mean, Tabitha hears from us directly. She knows how much we value her and treasure her because we tell her pretty much every time we're with her. Um, but I feel like I don't do so publicly enough. So Jeremy and I wanted to take this opportunity to thank you, Tabitha. Can you put your screen up there? I know you probably won't. But thank you, Tabitha, and tell you publicly uh, what we've expressed to you so many times privately, that we love you so much and we value you so, so much. And it's hard to uh, explain how quickly things would fall apart without you. So uh, so thank you, Tabitha. And also Mazel Tov, Tabitha, on your beautiful children, Adia and Effie, being in the IDF. 
Did we put up that picture? How sweet are they? They are so, as sweet as, as they look, that is how sweet they are. Um, they're just so good. And it's not hard to imagine why, because they have Tabitha as their, uh, as their mother and Josh Epstein, who is a big tzaddik that we love, Tabitha's husband as their father. Anyways, what an amazing contribution you are to the nation of Israel in every way, Tabitha. May Hashem bless your children and your family and protect them and bless and protect you. So thank you so much, Tabitha. Thank you. And there's also our beloved Ben Bresky. You know, he's been such a loyal friend for so long. And for him, what he's doing here with this fellowship, working behind the scenes and the Zoom and the technical stuff, it's not just a job for him. He's, he is furthering the mission of Am Yisrael in so many different ways, um, in different work that he does. May Hashem bless you, Ben, and protect you as well. Thank you. There's so much to be thankful for. Um, you know, I've been having such waves of gratitude, and I'm sure it's, it's very strongly connected to the Shabbat that I just spent in the hospital. And don't worry, this fellowship is not going to be another one where I'm talking all about that. But it's just very much front and center for me. You know, it's, it's one thing going to the hospital and spending time with my father, spending time with the loved one. It's another thing altogether spending the entire Shabbat at the hospital. You know, it's an entire world in there. It's like a vortex world unto itself. You know, I got there at 3 and I left at 9 p.m. the next day, not having walked outside once. You just don't leave. And being that Shari Tzedek Hospital is a relatively religious hospital in Jerusalem, and, uh, and on Shabbat, the hospital sets up an entire room, you know, a small auditorium for people to sleep in there for Shabbat hospitality at no charge. Here's a pic. You know, uh, my sister saved me this little mattress. So that's the arrow pointing to the bed that I slept on, if you can see it. Um, so that's what the hospital does. It's pretty, it's a beautiful thing. There's so many things like that in Israel and Jerusalem that I think are just so unique. There's, and there's just such tremendous chesed, loving kindness that happens every day. I'm in the hospital. I just see it every day. Israel is actually the number one country in the world for hospital clowns per capita. You know what hospital clowns are, medical clowns, people that go to the hospital to make kids laugh and whatever. Yours truly, actually, me, I dabbled in the art of medical clowning, as a matter of fact. I'm the guy on the left, in case there's any confusion. Uh, my name, Dr. Schmendrick Flotzenstein. But anyways, it's just so heartwarming that there have been times I've walked into a waiting room, particularly in the pediatric units, and it seems that there are more volunteer medical clowns than sick people sometimes. You know, it's also a place, by the way, that the, uh, the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, they shine in hospitals. They perform tremendous chesed, from handing out food to singing songs. They go ward to ward, often room to room, reciting the prayers like Kiddush or Havdalah for Shabbat. Here's a pic of them actually visiting my dad in the hospital. That's my father all the way to the left, uh, sitting there, and they're, they're in the hospital there. Anyway, so while this past Shabbat was not easy or pleasant, um, there is something healthy, healthy about being in the hospital. As funny as that sounds, I know that sounds funny. But the reason is from the same family of ideas that we see in Mishle and Proverbs, where King Solomon says, Tov avel, You know, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men and the living will lay it into his heart. So that's true. It's important to experience a house of mourning. It's important to, from time to time to go to, uh, to a cemetery. You know, it puts things into perspective. 
but uh, but a hospital is different. You know, there's uh, the cemetery. It's a little bit game over. You know, whereas in the hospital, there's so much to be done there. I don't know of a building that has greater dormant spiritual potential contained within it than a hospital. I mean, let's just start with the nurses. You know, a perfect example. I've come to really deeply appreciate and love these nurses. They're the unsung heroes. And I don't think that there's a profession with more opportunity, opportunity for light. You know, there are some nurses where it felt like they were somewhat detached and just doing their jobs, doing them well, but doing their jobs. Um, but the vast majority of them had so much compassion and empathy and goodness. And they're dealing with people at their weakest and most vulnerable moments, people that are filled with fear and pain and loneliness. And, uh, you know, and, and they take them to the bathrooms and they wipe them and they change their diapers and they spoon feed them. You know, I, can, I even understand the ones that could perhaps put up walls and calluses around their hearts. I mean, to put in so much and develop relationships and kindle friendships just to have person after person die on you, I can understand putting up walls. But as far as I can see, the vast majority of these sweet holy nurses are not putting up walls. They're always there with a smile and a good word, even if they're being screamed at by the very person they're so lovingly tending to. They're just very inspiring people. I'm telling you, I came away from this Shabbat um, with a newly committed resolve to making hospital visits a part of my family chesed. I want, you know, Shane and I are reading this book. You know, there's the seven uh, habits of highly effective people. It's called the seven habits of highly effective families. And you sort of put in your own values that you want to proactively and thoughtfully put in to your family's schedule. And, and, uh, and Shane and I spoke about this. We want to make this a weekly family activity. At least maybe when the kids get a little bit older, Sheila's only 11 months. Because really, you know, at least for me, there's, there's no excuse not to. You don't even have to know what you're doing. You don't need to take a medical clown course. You see, I, I think often we have this tendency to think that if there's something really important that needs to be done, that someone is on it. You know, there's, there's a nonprofit out there doing things. There are all sorts of volunteers. Am I really needed? And the answer is yes, yes. There are so many people in these hospitals that are totally alone or not even totally alone, but their family simply can't afford to be with them always at all times, 24 seven around the clock. And so they have to spend hours on end confined to the hospital bed, trapped in the loneliness of their own minds. I'm telling you, you don't need to uh, put on a red nose and you don't need to have a joke in your back pocket. All these people need is someone holding their hand and, and, and lovingly maybe caressing their hand, patting their arm, rubbing their shoulder, loving words, encouraging words, a little song, you know, the, the human touch. So many of them are so thirsty for something. It's so little, it's really heartbreaking. You know, in the, um, in the bed next to my father, there's this elderly man, and he's been there for months. And his loving, doting family, I've met all of them numerous times as they're taking different ships, uh, shifts. They told me that he survived Auschwitz. And he lies there in his bed spending hours on end just groaning and moaning and crying and weeping. And I don't know if it's physical or spiritual or emotional or what's happening with him. You know, his family's with him when they can be. But they have jobs and, you know, family just can't do it always. So this week they left him on Shabbat evening and he started moaning and crying. And it's again, it's he's just going, die, die, die. I was on the phone with Shana. She couldn't believe how loud it was. Die means enough, enough, enough. He's just saying enough. He can't take the pain anymore. And I would have thought really that it would be driving my father 
crazy that this man is a foot and a half away from him, keeping him awake at all hours when he's struggling to sleep at all. But really, no. My father told me that, you know, his heart is breaking for this poor man and the suffering that he endures. And I was grateful to hear my father say that because he's going through so much that to know that he has the strength in him to have compassion and think about others, you know, I think in some way it's a blessing to him. And so my dad just lies there concerned for him and praying for his healing. Um, so anyways, in the middle of the night, the wailing was getting so bad that I just went to him and held his hand and caressed his shoulder. And to my surprise, you know, I thought it wouldn't make any difference. But to my surprise, really, he immediately stopped wailing. And within a couple of minutes, he fell asleep. And that exchange happened a number of times throughout Shabbat. And I remember thinking, like, really? That's all I needed to do to bring comfort and peace to this holy, sick, elderly man in Jerusalem? What a privilege I have to do this. I need to do this more. But anyways, you know, before Dvash and Sheila were born, when I was uh, more into clowning, and I would, I would usually go to the kids' wards. You know, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's difficult, but that's, it's a beautiful thing and it's a needed thing, but really everybody does that. You go to the pediatric oncology wards, the pediatric wards, everybody does that. But now, you know, after my experience in the geriatric ward, please God, Glee Nedder, I really want to spend a good amount of time there. Please God, when my father's released and much healthier, I want to go there and hold hands and, and just sing to people and share a good word. There's just so much suffering and darkness in these hospitals. I don't know, all of a sudden, I'm like an evangelist for medical clowns. I don't know how this happened. But, um, but you know, if you, you go to these hospitals, if you're not careful to go in there with the right headspace and to approach it right with the right faith and the right trust, it's enough to break you. You know, when, when you just shift your perspective for a moment, you can see, though, the great opportunity lying before you. And there's a lot of ancient Jewish wisdoms, but I just saw this cartoon that I saw, and I wanted to share the cartoon with you rather than a verse from the sages. It's, it shows that like two on top, like this little dragon on this panda. The world can be a dark place sometimes, said tiny dragon, whoever that is. But where it's the darkest, said big panda, is where your light will make the most difference. You know, we've discussed, uh, we've discussed it before. If ain't od milvado, if there's nothing other but Hashem in the world, if there's nothing but him, then how could one be close to Hashem or far away? We're always immersed in Hashem's oneness. And we've taught, we just taught about this on forum. So because according to, to Torah teachings, you are close to Hashem when you are similar to him and you're distant from Hashem when you're different from him. You're close to Hashem when you're similar to him, when you embody his attributes of kindness and compassion and love. And when you're distant from Hashem, when you're selfish, cruel, hateful. And so when you're performing an act of chesed, of loving kindness, and you feel that indescribable light coursing through your veins, that is Hashem channeling his light and his love through you, harnessing you as his messenger, as his angel in the world. You know, the word is bikur cholim, visiting the sick. It's a great mitzvah. It's likened to giving life itself, to actually taking a little piece of the ailment, of the pain, of the sickness away from the person. Exactly for that reason, bikur cholim, visiting the sick. It's such a holy thing to do. Anyways, there's so much more to share, but I want to take a stop here and introduce my beloved friend, Jeremy, to share from his heart. Well, the first thing that I want to say is that Ari and I were invited to lecture. I believe it was at Hayobel, and I dared Ari to come directly after one of his medical clown visits. 
And that means that he was going to come and give a lecture in front of, I don't know, 100 or 200 people, full gown uh, clown costumes. And because we've been best friends since we were 18, and that's still a game for us, but if you dare someone to do something, then you got to prove yourself a man. <laughs> so Ari appeared at this lecture that he was invited to give in full hospital clown uniform, embodying what it is to be a hospital clown. He gave a whole tour about being a hospital clown. Wait, Jeremy, can I just can I just tell you really quick? I remember how I opened up that speech all these years later. I remember <laughs> okay. what I said. I said, uh, you know, I said on the way here, I was thinking about putting on my rabbi costume. But uh, but you guys are like family. How you value like family to us. And with family, you don't need to put on costumes. And there I was saying that with a red nose on with an insanely ludicrous looking shirt. I remember that opening. Anyways, yeah, go ahead, Jack. Well, so there's there's uh, there's only been one time in my life that I was hoping that there would be an attempted terror attack. Um, and that was when Ari was leaving the hospital because the headline would have been Jerusalem clown neutralizes terrorist in Jerusalem. And I just thought that would be the most amazing headline as Ari's walking out of the hospital in his clown suit on his way to lecture in Har Bracha to him encounter a terrorist and neutralize him with his red nose on. And so um, that is a perfect Ari Abramowitz um, behavior, just bringing light and love to the children in the hospital. And actually it ties in perfectly with the teaching that I wanted to give over today. And so um, we finished the book of Shemot. We finished the book of Exodus. And when you look at the books of the Torah, you know, they, they make sense. They're ordered with divine wisdom. Book of Genesis, it's the beginnings, it's Bereshit, the beginning of the creation, beginning of the world, beginning of humanity, beginning of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. And it's Genesis, Bereshit, it makes sense. Then we have the story of Shemot. Israel gets its identity, its name, it becomes a nation. It's leaving Egypt. It's the story of Shemot, the story of the greatest liberation movement in human history that inspired all other liberation movements since. And then we have Vaikra, Leviticus. Leviticus, it's like all about the tabernacle, sacrifices, calling out to God, drawing close to God. And the question that comes up is, why are the last Parshas in the book of Exodus about the Mishkan, about the tabernacle, about, I mean, that should have just gone into Vaikra. Meaning if I was ordering the Torah according to books and according to chapters, so Exodus, maybe I would have ended with like the Ten Commandments, the golden calf, and I would like, but now it's like Parsha after Parsha is all about talking about the construction of the tabernacle where all of the book of Vaikra is about the tabernacle. Like, why is that at the end of the book of Exodus? It really doesn't belong there seemingly. And here we are sort of like divinely written words with incredible wisdom. It's put there for a reason. And so we really have to think about that. Why does the story of Exodus end with the reality and the construction of the tabernacle? And so I've been thinking a lot about that. And to me, the answer is actually in the last verses of the book of Shemot. So that's Exodus chapter 40. Um, it starts at verse 34, and then I kind of skip to the very last uh, verse here up on the screen. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Hashem filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of Hashem would be on the tabernacle by day, and fire would be on it at night, before the eyes of all of the house of Israel throughout their journeys. And that's how the book ends. The book ends with the tabernacle being created, 
and then Hashem's presence dwelling in the camp of Israel, among the people of Israel. And so really the story of Exodus, the story of our freedom, isn't just Israel going into the desert. I mean, what is the desert? The desert is just total chaos. It is like leaving the tyranny and going into the unknown. It's like we're, we can do whatever we want. There's no one around. There's no one looking. The desert is the place of nothing. And so maybe we would think that's what we want. We want chaos. We just want the freedom to do whatever we want. And here we're taught something really deep because here we can see in the modern world, there's a force that wants freedom to chaos. They've just now passed a law in Berlin and Germany that women in the public pools now should go in topless because that's equal to man. And really, what is a man anyway? There's no man. There's no woman. There's no right. There's no wrong. There's no truth. There's no lies. There's no good. There's no just tell we want freedom. Don't tell me what true is and what right is. I just want to be free to do whatever I want to do. And the Torah said, no, no, that's not real freedom. The book of Exodus is about the liberation from tyranny and into real freedom. And what is real freedom? How do we know when we are who we are meant to be? And so the last vision of the book of Exodus is when Hashem's presence comes into the nation of Israel and dwells among them. And then what did Ari just now say? Ari said, well, what is it to be close to God? To be close to God physically, well, that's impossible because God is one with everything. You can't really be closer to God like you're closer to you know, your seat that you're sitting in right now. You're pretty close to the seat. But God is a part of you and a part of that seat. There is no closeness in the physical realm. It's the more similar you are to God, then the closer you are to him. And we walk in his ways, you draw closer to him. And so what then is true freedom? A lot of people, they see the Torahs, like the Ten Commandments, with this booming voice that came from the outside that was pushed down upon us. But the deepest depths of the Torah is that our souls are a spark of God. If God is the sun, all of us are rays of that sun. And so all of us are a reflection of his light in the world. Our souls are a reflection of him. That means that the deepest depths of my soul, my deepest desire, my deepest will is one with God's will. And so what is ultimate freedom? It isn't just freedom to do whatever my body wants or whatever my immediate impulses are. That's just chaos. Real freedom is being able to tune ourselves into living a life where God is present in our life. And that's what the Torah is actually telling us. The climax of all of the story is what? It's not the Ten Commandments. It's not the law. It's not the religion. It's not the guidelines. All of those are just steps to bring us to a place where God's spirit dwells in our camp, where God's presence is in our home where God's presence is manifest in our life. Because if we're able to align our will with his will, then his will will be done in our life. We will become the people we were created to be and will fulfill the destiny we were sent here for. And so the book doesn't end at Matan Torah, at the giving of the Torah, because the Torah is just a vehicle to accomplish the ultimate mission. And what is the ultimate mission? What do we want? We want to live with God's presence in our lives. And so we should all be blessed as we finish the book of Exodus together, that God's presence should dwell in our lives, should dwell in our homes, dwell in our families, dwell in our relationships, and realize that as we continue that journey toward our promise, toward our promised land, the place where God wants us to be, 
And as we continue to rise that ladder, that we lift up everyone around us as we continue to ascend and become closer and closer to who God gave us to be. So Shalom Fellowship and um, just love that we finish the book of Exodus once again together. Beautiful, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, that's that's what it's about. It's about the tabernacle. And we've, we've discussed this so much. You can't discuss it enough because it's such a central part of what it is uh, to what our mission is in this world. It not only is as, as Jews, but as human beings, as children of God. Um, that's what these portions are about. And like I said, you know, I used to gloss over them and space out and think that these verses are less relevant than, you know, those juicy stories in Bereshit and Genesis. But I recently uh, heard my beloved friend Yishai Fleischer quote, who I believe was Rabbi Yeshayahu Leibovitch, who uh, contrasted how many verses Hashem used to describe every nuanced intricacy of the tabernacle versus the very few sparse verses which Hashem uses in Genesis to describe the creation of the world, right? It's like a hundred times more in the, of describing the tabernacle than the creation of the universe. And uh, the lesson that he derives here is that uh, the reason for that is that we're on a mission here. We have a purpose, and that is to create a habitation in this world here in the lowest of realms where Hashem's presence can rest in the most revealed way, at the lowest place, the lowest manifestation. And that's important because while I very much, you know, I enjoy discussions of theology and philosophy, who is Messiah and who isn't and how many times has he come, all of that, you know, when it's done with good spirits and with the humble hearts like it is with, where, when it happens with us, you know, it, it's a good thing. Um, I do believe that those discussions have their time and place, but they're not the main course. They're not the main course. Why? Because we were sent to this world on a mission to bring God's light and oneness and truth to the world. And we got to stay focused, mission oriented. And by the way, I bless us that we're able to, to do that and stay focused on that together. That's what we're here for. You know, it's like a weekly pep talk exactly to stay focused on that. And while we're each trying to build this dwelling place for Hashem in our hearts to make ourselves a tabernacle with which I, within, you know, which Hashem dwells, the nation of Israel is entrusted with the task of doing this on a national scale, on a global level. And part of the way we do that is through the actual physical tabernacle that we're talking about here. I think that that question I got that I didn't respond to is on this subject. You know, why we need a tabernacle at all, I think. Um, you know, and when we're wandering through the desert, it's a tabernacle. And it's the temple when we've arrived in the land of Israel at our final destination. Uh, please God, the final and third and final temple will be soon. And when we, uh, when we forget, you know, that we're blessed with success in this holy mission only when we're faithful to Hashem and His Torah and to our covenant with Him, when we're kind and compassionate to the widow and the orphan and the weak people in society. Uh, you know, when we forget that, it's that, that, the, that the temple is not just a structure or a building, but it's a relationship. Well, that's when Hashem's presence departs and the temple is left an empty shell, an empty shell that is quickly destroyed because as long as it stands empty, it's a mockery. It's a disgrace to Hashem's name. And that's why we, when we mourn on the ninth of Av, we don't focus on the Babylonians or the Romans or the Greek Seleucid Empire, but, but on our own sins our transgressions, which invited these dark emissaries to implement the divine decree of destruction and exile, which we really deserve. And that's why the temple and the tabernacle and the divine service of the Kohanim is such a central part of the Torah. 
because it's not only relevant for in the past in the temple or in the future temple, but it's super relevant for today, for all of us, for all of us. You know, we don't realize just how many of the Jewish practices, the Jewish laws, the Jewish rituals trace back to the temple. Not only the Jewish things, you know, Catholicism, the Pope models himself, he, he dresses himself like the high priest on the Day of Atonement. But within Torah Judaism, it's all about the temple. We could do countless fellowships just on this. So, so know that I'm only just touching on the surface, but the parallels are never ending. The example that comes to mind right now is our Shabbat meals. You know, we greet the Sabbath by lighting the candles, which is a direct allusion to the first task of the Kohen's day, which is to light the menorah. On Shabbat, we make kiddush over the wine, which is about the wine libations in the temple. We have the chalot, just like the temple had the famous uh, beautiful showbreads. You know, on the, on the table, we, uh, we must have salt uh, on our Shabbat table, which is an integral part of the sacrifices. Uh, which, you know, we're told in, in uh, Leviticus and Baikra chapter 2, verse 13, with all your sacrifices shall you offer salt. You know, the table itself is likened to the altar upon which the sacrifices were altered, were, were offered. Even the, uh, the blessings that we give to our children are taken from the exact blessings which the high priest uttered to bless the nation of Israel. You know, we sing around the table like the Levites sang around the table and so much more. It goes on and on. But, but it isn't just the Sabbath meal, which is modeled after the temple. It's our daily lives. Now, open your hearts, my friend. This is such a beautiful teaching. One of the daily rituals that I've always connected with uh, the most, at least since I'm 15 or 16 years old, is the ritual of washing hands immediately upon waking up in the morning. Um, some people don't take it as seriously, but it's part of Jewish law. It's a big deal. You know, the more mystical meaning behind it, which by, I, I truly believe because I experience it every day, is that when we ritually wash our hands in the morning, we're cleansing them of this slight but very real impurity that comes upon us when we sleep. Because, uh, you know, a dead body is the highest level of impurity. And so when we sleep, it's like a fraction of death, our sages tell us. So, you know, I can't do anything, anything in the morning until I wash my hands. Even if Dvash is screaming, Abba, Abba! In the middle of the night, you know, unless it's super urgent, I will first go to the restroom and ritually wash my hands. I don't want to touch anyone or anything until I do that. And, uh, you know, there are many people that keep the ritual hand washing cup right next to their bed with an empty bowl under it so that they don't even have to make their way to the restroom without purifying themselves first. But that's a very high level. You know, this is uh, this is actually right here. I brought it with me. This is what the uh, ritual washing cup looks like for those of you who haven't seen it. It has two handles because we hold one in the right hand to wash the left hand and then one in the left hand to wash the right hand. And we alternate three times. And that's what the, uh, the washing looks like. Um, but really, you know, the spiritual impurity aside, the simplest and most straightforward reason that we wash our hands in this ritual way, not only before Shabbat or other meals, but in the first thing in the morning is because that's the very first thing the, the priests would do before entering the temple and beginning the temple service. And as I was studying these portions, you know, the theme of the temple service being infused into our lives really stood out. But it was only after reading the words of Rav Nagen um, that it really came together for me in the most beautiful way. So the Torah tells us like this in, in chapter 40, in the, towards the end of Pekude, one of the last verses in the book of Exodus. It says, he emplaced the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar. 
and there he put water for washing. Moses, Aaron, and his sons washed their hands and their feet from it. So while the Torah calls it washing, the sages of Israel unpack it a little bit more and they call it something else, something much deeper and more, more profound than just washing. That's what we call it. They call it sanctifying, makadesh, sanctifying their hands and feet, which has a, um, you know, it's a more proactive sort of mission-filled sound to it. You know, much more than just watching, washing something, which is about the removal of unwanted substances or dirt or whatever. Um, sanctifying is more about preparing for a sacred mission. I mean, the, the washing that the priests did of their hands and their feet before entering the temple was so clearly not about physical cleanliness. If it was, then a priest wouldn't be condemned to death if he entered the court, courtyard of the temple before doing it. I mean, nothing like that ever happened. Such a decree never implemented, but I think the Torah is, you know, teaching that and declaring that to show the importance of this seemingly abstract ritual, right? Clearly, it's about so much more. And this sanctification is performed every single day. Why? Because every day is a new creation. At least it's, suppo it's supposed to be a new creation. Sometimes we carry things from day to day. But if we had clear-eyed, uh, you know, clear vision of the truth, we would see that not only is every day a new creation, but that every day we are a new creation. There's a, you know, there's a book of Jewish law in which the mitzvot are gleaned and aggregated from the Torah and the words of the sages. The book is called the Kitsur Shulchan Aruch, which I guess you would translate as the uh, abridged Shulchan Aruch. You know, the, the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch begins with a directive that sounds like it could have been taken out of, out of one of Jeremy's motivational videos. You know, like, wake up like a lion. That's how it starts. You know, I'd actually like to read. I, I think we have time. I'd like to read the whole sort of beginning verse to you. It's a little bit long, but it's just to give you a lot of you maybe haven't looked inside and, at Jewish law and the way it's formulated and, and how it sounds. So this is actually from the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. So this is what it says. Therefore... It is imperative for a person to be strong as a lion, right? It just, it just said before this, to wake up like a lion. Immediately upon awakening and reciting the Mode Ani prayer, which we've talked about before, you should rise with alacrity for the service of the creator, blessed and elevated is he. Before you're overwhelmed by your evil impulse and various excuses not to rise, right? Before you're outsmarted and seduced in the winter, right? With the argument, how can you rise? So early in the morning when the weather is so cold or in the summer, the evil impulse will argue, how can you rise from your bed when you're still not satisfied? You haven't had enough sleep. You may get sick or other similar claims. The evil impulse knows very well the art of entrapping a person with all kinds of snares to prevent him from rising. Therefore, every sensitive person who fears and trembles before the word of Hashem must triumph over the evil impulse and not listen to it even if it's extremely difficult because of physical considerations or laziness. Your aim must be to fulfill the will of the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be He. You should realize that if you were called upon by any individual to participate in a business transaction in which there's profit or to collect a debt, or if someone called with a plan to save your wealth from disaster, for example, or if a fire occurred in the city or something similar occurred, you certainly would be quick to awaken immediately because of your concern for your wealth and you wouldn't act sluggishly. Similarly, if you would need to go to the service of the king 
you would rise with alacrity and not be sluggish, sluggish lest you be denigrated. Or you would rise with alacrity in order to find favor in the eyes of the king. We're talking about a human king here. How much more so should this apply for the service of the king of kings? The Holy One, blessed be he, that you should be concerned to rise quickly and with alacrity. Once you accustom yourself to this practice four or five times, you will no longer find it difficult, as our sages have said. He who makes an effort to purify himself is divinely assisted in his efforts. Is it just me that found that inspiring? Raise your hand if you thought that was inspiring. Well, you know, that's I, actually, like, I, found it, I found it so inspiring that I wrote a book about it. And let me just tell you, what is the practical answer there? Because to wake up like a lion, that's very like amorphous to me, like a lion. I don't know what that means, but there's something really practical. And really what the advice is, is to not hit the snooze button. That's what it means. It means when you wake up, get out of bed. Do not hit the snooze button for that extra 10 minutes because then your brain goes back to sleep. And then when you're going to wake up, you're going to be in another weird state of like kind of half sleep dream state. It's like the snooze button is the no-no. And that yeah. is now scientifically proven to be the healthier, better way to wake up. <laughs> so many hundreds and centuries ago, um, the, this guidance was given to us. And now it's shown if you want to have a better morning, do not hit the snooze button. Wake up like a lion. As soon as you wake up, get out of bed. Jeremy, you plagiarize that. It says right here, the next verse, the snooze button thy shall not presseth. I'm just kidding. It doesn't say that. That's a joke. But anyways... <laughs> Immediately thereafter, you know, after this whole thing, after sharing the thinking and the philosophy that we, you know, we, we just went through, it actually lays down the law, right? It says, when one arises from bed in the morning, one is like a, new, uh, a being newly created in order to serve the creator, blessed is his name. One, is, one must therefore sanctify oneself and wash one's hands from a vessel, like a priest who would wash his hands every day from the labor prior to his service. By the way, you don't need to have a special cup like this. You can just have a normal cup. Um, but anyways, you know, uh, you know, we see here. And just not for the people, by the way, yeah. that don't have a cup, you don't even need a cup. What you do is you turn the faucet on, turn it off, turn it on, turn it off, and just switch hands. So it's best to have a cup with two handles. Then it's best to have a cup with one handle. Then if you don't have that, just a regular cup. And if you don't even have that, then you can really just do it with the faucet, turning it on and off. That's, That's like true. I do that. We do that in the army when we don't have another uh, thing. But I, I really for me, it's just not the same for some reason doing it with a vessel. And I now really am cognizant of why that's the way the priests did it. And that's the way we do it. You know, this was not only the law for the priests in the temple, but for every single person. You know, as I explain nearly every week, the nation of Israel is divided into 12 tribes and the Kohanim, right? The priests are a sub tribe within the tribe of Levi that are direct descendants from Aaron, the high priest. But are these priests better than other tribes? No, no. They just have a very important role and mission within the greater mission of the nation of Israel. Now, as I read just a few weeks ago um, in Parshat Yitro, right, uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses five and six. And now, if you hearken well to me and observe my co covenants, you shall be to me the most beloved treasures of all people. And I'm Segula. For mine is the entire world. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. So as the Torah clearly tells us, it's the same relationship between the nation of Israel and the nations of the world. 
Um, the Kohanim to the, to the tribes is the nation of Israel to the nations of the world. It's almost like you can picture it concentric circles. You can actually see it on an out, outline or a diagram of the temple, right? Where there's only where the Kohanim go in and then where the tribes go in and then where all of the nations come together. That's the breakdown. And I think it's really important because a lot of Jew haters say, oh, you think you're better. You think you're more wonderful. You think, no, 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 that's not what it's about. You know, and, I, and I've always felt that it's our job as, as priests, as Kohanim to the nations, to bless all of mankind and help each and every human being understand that we're all priests in our own way, in service of Hashem. So as Ravna again explains, when one is a priest, well, then the entire world in which they interact in a, in a, in a deep and very true way, the entire world is a type of temple in which they are serving their creator, which is why we wake up and wash our hands like the priest, because we're about to go into the courtyard of the temple, which is the world. So when we wash our hands in the morning like the priests of the temple, it's far more than, you know, mere symbolic stuff. It's a, it's a recognition of the holiness and the magnitude, uh, you know, of every single day that we wake up in the morning and we wash our hands with the cognizance and recognition that the stakes are high and the mission is great. And we're about to engage in holy service to our creator as the priest did in the temple of Hashem. That's the recognition. That's how we should view ourselves as priests in the temple. You know, in, in the eyes of truth, perhaps our job of bringing light to the world by serving Hashem in his temple is, is of no less importance. I don't know. I'm not someone that can understand what is relative importance from one thing to the other. But Rav again actually goes on to sharing a teaching that was given by one of his students who's named Noam Apter, Zichronoli Vracha, may his memory be a blessing. And Noam shared with Rav again that he thought that both hands and feet of the priest needed to be washed for a reason, essentially because they both serve this critical function, right? He, uh, he takes his reasoning from the Torah portion, which teaches us that the mitzvah applied in two situations, from uh, Exodus chapter 30, verse 20, when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister. So I'm reading this directly from the book. In order to approach the sacred, one must know how to use one's feet, Noam explained, while ministering requires the use of one's hands. Therefore, one must sanctify both. This is true of life in general, Noam said, and, and explained that we are required to learn how to use our legs to come to the right place and our hands so that upon arriving, we'll know what to do. Now, uh, you know, I was going to share uh, the, uh, the story uh, of what happened with Noam, because it's particularly powerful, because this teaching that I just read from Noam was almost prophetic regarding the way not only that he lived his life, but the way he left the world. But rather than telling you the story myself, I thought I would ask Jeremy uh, to share it with you for reasons that uh, you will soon see. Okay, so Noam Abder was one of my closest friends in yeshiva. And so we studied for two years together, and then he went into the paratroopers unit. He was selected uh, as an early rank to go up to become an officer. So he went out to uh, class commander's training. And then after that training, he came back to yeshiva. And I had just gotten married. And that Shabbat, there was like a special thing that another yeshiva was coming, and they came to Neil and Tehillah and I, newlyweds, decided to go to her parents for Shabbat. And Noam, who was just out of the army, volunteered to stay there to help with kitchen duty. 
And that night, two terrorists broke in to the kitchen of my yeshiva, dressed up as IDF soldiers with hand grenades and M16, and they opened up fire all throughout the kitchen. So four people were killed. Noam was one of them. But Noam, after he got shot in the stomach, which is arguably the most painful thing someone can go through. I remember when Tahila, we had some question in one of her pregnancies, and she had to get a needle into her stomach to extract some of the amniotic fluid. And she said having that needle go through the layers of muscle to get to her was so excruciatingly painful. She didn't know, she just never experienced something so hard. But a bullet is much worse than a needle. And somehow through that pain, Noam put himself, instead of hiding, he put himself again into the line of fire to go to the doors that separated between the kitchen and the dining room where dozens and dozens of students were, students, some of them with families and children. And he locked the door so the terrorists wouldn't be able to go in with their machine guns and just gun down all of those innocent people. And as he locked the door, he was shot and killed. And somehow before he died, he was able to somehow eliminate the key that they could never actually break through the door. And so his last act in his life was to save um, so many more people beyond him and talk about knowing what to do with your feet and knowing what to do with your hands. That was a Torah that sort of lasted longer than Noam. But he was such an amazing guy. He was so cool and he was so fun and he was a paratrooper and he was a warrior and he was, you know, a, a Torah student and just so, the, the last uh, fun time we had, uh, he called me up. And he said, Jeremy, let's go scuba diving. And I'm like, great, Noam, let's go scuba diving. He's like, no, no, I mean, I mean now. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then we got in the car and drove all the way down to a lot, went scuba diving for the day and then drove all the way back that night. And he was just the kind of guy that he was. He was just so fun and so cool and just loved God's creation and loved God's Torah and loved the nation of Israel. And when my youngest son was born, we called him Noam. And that was a memory of Noam Abder, who just lived his life as a young hero, but embodied what it is to be a Jew in the land of Israel nowadays. And so there's the picture of Noam there getting his first Torah just a few months ago. So that was a big celebration that finally we, our youngest son got his own five books of Moses right there in that cute picture. And so Noam and Noam, I only hope that Noam will continue to walk in the footsteps of the great people before him. But to know what to do with your feet that will take you to the right place. And then when you're in the right place, to know what to do with your hands, to know what to do once you get there. That's a blessing I give to everyone here. Amen. Amen. I'm just, you know, so humbled by stories like that. And it's, it feels like the, the most heroic, the greatest are like taken from us, almost for us to be talking about them and to learn about them and to be inspired from them. You know, talk about he's, he was a guy that would wash his hands and enter into the courtyard of the temple, you know, which is the world we live in. That's I'm sure how I didn't know Noam. I mean, I knew him through you, but I never actually met him. But, um, but, uh, but, you know, we meet people like this in this world. You know, actually, when I was reading it, uh, the first person that came to mind was someone I had just met a few minutes before, maybe an hour before. This was on Shabbat. I was reading the Torah portion. Um, the, pers the person that came to mind was this ultra-Orthodox looking guy 
who stepped into the hospital elevator with me on Friday afternoon as I was entering the building, feeling somewhat, uh, you know, intimidated about what lay in store for me, you know, hoping and but not at all sure that I would be able to rise to the occasion and be there for my father like he needed me and put myself and all my stuff aside. I was just not sure. I was totally in my own head. I was probably wearing it on my face. And so this guy, this ultra-Orthodox guy with long white peyote uh, jumps in the elevator and he tur turns towards me and says, where are you going? And I told him I, I came to spend Shabbat with my father who's quite ill. And he jumped in the air. I remember thinking at the time, I wish I was wearing that head camera to just capture what I'm seeing right now. Uh, it's, it's a Jerusalem moment, but it's something you don't capture in Kansas, that's for sure. And he jumped in the air and exclaimed something like, the entire Shabbat, you're staying with him? Wow, what a son you are. So inspiring. You're filling up the elevator with light. You've made me so happy that I got to meet someone like you. May you bring everybody as much happiness as you brought me right now. Thank you, thank you. Hashem should bless you. And he was like waving his arms in the air, literally jumping up and down. And I was sitting there looking at this guy. And I have to admit, you know, I'm, I'm rarely on that side of things, you know, but I have to admit, I, I think that for a moment, I may have looked at him with the same sort of amused, skeptical eyes that I've been looked at myself so many times when I'm on my game somewhere near like this guy was. But, um, but despite the fear and anxiety I was feeling, I found that a smile was on my face. He won that round. He won that round. Uh, and, and that type of being, that doesn't come naturally. Being that happy and that positive is an exertion. It's a real service. That is a lifetime of internalizing the truth that bringing happiness to your fellow man is bringing happiness to Hashem himself. And, and while I don't know it for sure, I really do think that that guy was coming to spend his entire Shabbat in the hospital to do just that, just, just, just that to jump around from place to place, assaulting people with light and love and encouragement. You know, I may have even been his first uh, client there. That, you know, that's a guy that wakes up in the morning, washes his hands and goes to work in the sanctuary that is this world to serve his creator by bringing light and joy to his children, by bringing, you know, by bringing light to the world. You know, and that, um, you know, that, that holy white pious chassid, he's not alone. I feel like our mountain, our fellowship, Really, the land of Israel is, is a magnet attracting all souls in true service of Hashem to this holy place. I don't know. I have so many examples and videos that I wanted to show you. I don't know why I didn't include all of them, but I just threw one of them. I just wanted to put one of them out there to show you just one thing that happened this week out of the unbelievable myriad of, of beautiful light that's coming to the world on our mountain that is so contrasting the darkness that I see unfolding everywhere else. So I recorded this film on Friday, and before sharing it with anyone else, I wanted to share it with all of you. Shalom, my friends. I just need to let you in on this moment, which is one of the most historic moments, not only in our journey out here on the Judean frontier on the Arugot farm, but really in the history possibly of the Jewish people. We have right now a group of Germans out here that have come out here. They've come out here for five years ago. They started coming out here once a year and they said that they wanted to volunteer to help us build. And we said, who are you? Why us? They said, most of us are children and grandchildren of Nazis. And our parents brought so much darkness and death and destruction. We want to bring light and life and building. And they said, uh, you know, we said, why us? And they said, because you're the furthest settlement into Judea. This is where the world is the most against you. This is where we want to stand with you. And this year they've come out and they're building us the most beautiful chuppah 
deck overlook suspended over the Arugot Valley. I'm telling you, this is going to be one of the most beautiful places in the entire Middle East. And, uh, and couples are going to come out here and get married, just as the prophets have said. For thousands of years at every Jewish wedding, we sing, Oh, We will sing in the hills of Judea and the outskirts of Jerusalem, the bride and the groom. There's nowhere in the world that is more the hills of Judea. That's where we are. The outskirts of Jerusalem, you could see it right there. And they're building us. This, they said they're their parents and grandparents brought destroyed so many Jewish families. They want to create a platform upon which Jewish families can be built and established. If that isn't redemption, literally forget the theology of the word. If that isn't redemption, then I don't know what redemption is. This is just such a moment and I'm so happy to be able to share it with all of you. With all the darkness that's happening in the world, there's also a tremendous amount of light. And this is one of the greatest places that light. Okay, so, uh, so is that beautiful? I wanted to share that with you. I actually took a picture earlier of what it looks like now because they spent right until an hour before Shabbat they were there. And now, Jeremy, what is it like 90% done already now? Yes, it's 90% it's done. Tabitha, I actually just sent you a video. If you can put it either on the screen right now, I don't know if you can do that because I just sent it to you right now. But if you can put it on the screen, um, that'd be great. Otherwise, we'll show it to you next week. There's a lot more to, to talk about about this. But, you know, whether these Germans, you know, actually wash their hands in the morning or not, I can tell you these are people that wake up and act. You know, they, they act in service of their creator. You know, they, they dedicate their lives to using the, the artisan, craftsman, building skills that Hashem blessed them with to serve their creator. That They've spent months putting this together, and then they just came and finally assembled it. Can you see it in the comments? The uh, the picture it's sort of from a distance. You know, a lot of credit over the Arugo Valley. Go ahead, Jeremy. Uh, a, a lot of credit also needs to go to our German fellowship members that helped put this together. Esther Klug, and just there was like a mobilization. This didn't just happen out of nowhere, but it was like really like birthed from our fellowship as well. That we keep on kind of building this mountain in the desert that's slowly but surely turning into the diamond in the crown of the mountains of Judea. And just wanted to thank Esther and all of our uh, German fellowship members that really came together to bring this to us and bring this into the world. Talk about redemption, it's unbelievable. You took the words right out of my mouth and uh, you know everybody can see if you wanna see who Esther is. Um, it says on her screen, Esther Klug, K-L-U-G-E. She's the, uh, the beautiful blonde that is uh, with the Star of David right behind her with uh, her uh, uh, incredibly righteous and loving husband, Tomas, who doesn't speak almost any English at all. Yet, I feel like I have spoken with him for hours and years that my soul and his have really gotten to know each other, although we've almost never exchanged any real verbal words. I just, his righteousness and goodness just beams and so does Esther. And we have so many holy G German friends here that have made that happen. So yes, thank you for that, Jeremy. And um, you know, there's the, if there's any group of people that are dedicated to service of Hashem, you know, aspiring to be like the priests in the courtyard of the temple, it's really this fellowship. It is you, my beloved friends in this fellowship. I can't tell you how, how inspired I am from you. You've made me a better person. You made me feel closer to God. You've challenged me in all the right ways. Um, you know, it's, it's the people in, in this fellowship that are, are, are really live your lives that way. And so I want to bless you and to bless all of us 
that really Hashem should continue giving us the courage and the strength to uh, renew ourselves every single day in the service of the one and only true God, the God of Israel. And through that service, bring the third and final Beit HaMikdash, the final redemption that our world so, so badly needs. Okay, my friends. So uh, it's my, this is my favorite part of the fellowship, arguably. You know, maybe there's the reason the fellowship was created so we can finally bless all of you uh, as you bless us, to bless you with the, uh, the Kohanic blessing, you know, that we spoke about in this fellowship, that Aaron, the high priest and his descendants, bless Israel, continue to bless us every day. And I'm not a descendant of Aaron, as I always say, but I am from the nation of priests. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yechunecha Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yesem lecha shalom May Hashem bless and protect you. May He shine His light and His countenance upon you. And may he give you peace. Amen. Love you, my friends. Stay in touch. Stay connected. We're going to please God be doing a fellowship connection next week. I want to get that going again. So if you have thoughts, comments, anything, please come with them prepared. I'm really excited about that. Love you all. Shalom, shalom. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.